The Old Testament reading can be found on page 9 of your pew Bible. It's from Genesis 13, verses 1 through 18. Abraham and, Abram and Lot separate. So Abram went down from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with them into Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and in silver and gold. He journeyed on from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them for dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Pezzarites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, and then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This is where the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamar, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. And if this is your first time coming to, to One Ancient Hope, we do want to give you a a warm welcome. I did want to mention, um, if you look at the, the story of Abraham, we did skip over the second part of, of chapter 12, and, and that's a situation where Abraham is going to go down to, to Egypt, and he puts his wife Sarah in a, a dangerous and a compromising situation. And what we're going to do is we're going to couple that with uh, an account later in the Genesis narrative where, where Abraham actually does the same thing uh, again. But today, we're, we're going to look at Genesis 13, the account that just read. And before we do so, let's come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your, for your word. We thank you for the way that it calls us, that it draws us, that it creates and crafts us as a church. Lord, I pray the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this passage, and that through it, Lord, um, you would bring us to Christ, and that you would make us like Christ. And we ask these things in Christ's name, in the power of your Spirit. Amen. So the theologian William Cavanaugh, in his fantastic book, Being Consumed, Economics and Christian Desire, he makes an important point about the way that we understand economics. And I don't mean to, to knock economics in any way. It's important and it's a necessary thing to study our economy as it actually exists. We need economists and the church needs Christian economists. 
However, we, we do live in a fallen world, and we do so as fallen people, and so there exist economic conditions that fall below God's intended ideal for humanity. And so William Cavanaugh writes the following, quote, Economics, we are told, is the science that studies the allocation of resources under the condition of scarcity. And, and what I want to focus on there is that understanding of, of scarcity. When we think about scarcity, the lack of, of some good or the lack of some product, it doesn't necessarily mean that that good or product um, is, is unavailable. Um, it might actually be in a quantity that we need. We can actually be in a state of scarcity if we have more than we need. Yet we can still be in a state of scarcity because we want more of that thing. Having enough or, or sufficiency is not what determines the economic notion of, of scarcity. Rather, it's a matter of how much we actually want. Again, we might have more than enough money, clothes, furniture, gadgets, but we still want more. And if we want more, then we are in a state of scarcity. Scarcity is not a matter of supply and sufficiency, not a matter of supply and having enough. Scarcity is a matter of supply and demand. It's a matter of supply and desire. Scarcity, then, in the economic sense, is, is ultimately not a function of need, but a function of desire. Um, as one article in National Geographic puts it, quote, One of the defining features of economics is scarcity, which deals with how people satisfy unlimited wants and needs with limited resources. We've got unlimited wants and limited resources. So what's the core problem here? Well, Kavanaugh, pulling from the, the insights of Augustine, says that the problem is not desire in and of itself. Humans naturally and rightly desire things. God made us as creatures who desire. But the problem is, is that we don't desire rightly. And this might seem counterintuitive, but the problem is not that we desire too much, but actually that we desire much too little. As Kavanaugh goes on to write, quote, the problem is that our desires continue to light on objects that fail to satisfy. And this is in a very similar vein. It, it, it sounds an echo that we've uh, probably heard before from, from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this decades ago, quote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And yet, at the same time, we know that we are not pleased because these things cannot wholly satisfy us. We might have all the money, food, romance, resources, professional successes, notoriety that we could ever possibly imagine. And yet, our desires still would not be satisfied. Our thirst would not be quenched, and we would just keep on desiring 
and desiring. And so even despite the greatest of excesses, even despite the most gratuitous gluttony, we would still be suffering the sting of scarcity. Economics is a matter of supply and demand, and our desires will never stop demanding. Except in one instance. Except if our endless desires meet their infinite match. Except if our desires seek the one thing that they can never, ever exhaust. And so Kavanaugh writes the following. The solution to the restlessness of desire is to cultivate a desire for God, the eternal one in whom our hearts will find rest. And this might seem abstract, but this is actually the very problem and the very solution that we find in the present passage. This passage of Abraham and Lot and their separation from each other. And to be sure, this is the very problem and solution that we continue to wrestle with in our own lives. And so I want to look at this passage under two headings, scarcity and generosity. Let's begin by looking at scarcity. We find at the beginning of the passage that Abraham and Lot have become very, very wealthy. They become rich and so much so that they're no longer able to dwell together. They've got too much livestock for the land that they're on. And so the size, the bigness of the herd forces these two kinsmen to separate. And to be sure, Abraham is the older of the two. And so technically, he's the one that should have the privilege of making the choice. That would have been the traditional custom. He would choose first, and Lot would take whatever was left when they looked at these two pieces of land. Yet Abraham acts with surprising humility. He lets Lot make the first choice. And think about this. Lot gets a chance that most of us do not. He gets a chance that most of us never will. Lot is actually presented with what he most desires. He actually gets it. He, he chooses it, and he obtains it. Perhaps this is the very kind of land that Lot has daydreamed Perhaps he's long wondered what would it be like to dwell in a place just like this. And so Lot gets what most of us probably never will. Lot gets exactly what he wants. We may wonder, we may daydream of what it would be like if we actually got that job, if we got those connections, if we had that kind of romantic appeal, if we had that size of a bank account. We may wonder, but Lot actually knows. And how do we know that this is the deep desire of Lot's heart? Well, there are a number of reasons, and the first is the way that he completely bypasses tradition and convention. He simply takes the land. He grabs it. He doesn't look back. Think about it. If, if someone had given you an extravagant offer beyond your uh, beyond your expectation, if they had actually broken social convention in doing so, you would at least say thanks. You, you would at least communicate your surprise, but in the text, we find no other response from Lot than what we find in verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. 
It's the beginning and the end of the matter. And why does Lot desire this land? Well, the text tells us the following. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So when Lot looks at the land, what does Lot see? He sees paradise. He sees the, quote, garden of God. And and this is meant to be a kind of reference to, to the Garden of Eden, the original place that God had set humanity. Even more, the text tells us that in his mind, it seems like Egypt. So how are we meant to draw all these things together? Well, when we look at each piece, we're going to find that what Lot actually desires is the Garden of God without God. He desires the Garden of Eden without the Lord. But to have Eden without God would be like desiring food without taste or nutrition. God is what the Garden is is for and what makes the Garden the wonderful place that it is. He wants the good gift of the Garden, but he wants it without God. How do we know this? Well, the reference to Egypt is very, very telling here. Think about the original audience of this passage. Moses is writing this. Moses is presenting this to Israelites. Israelites who have been divinely liberated from Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, and right now they're amidst 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. And again and again, what do we hear from the Israelites? They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back into bondage because in their memory, when they look back on that experience with these rose-colored glasses, they don't remember it rightly. They'll tell Moses that back in Egypt, we could have all of the delicious food that we could eat. And so the wish to go back to Egypt is the wish to no longer be dependent upon God, to no longer depend on God for your life and survival. Think about this. They'd rather be wholly at the mercy of their former slave masters than to be dependent upon the loving God. And when Lot looks at this land, it is well watered like Egypt. What's the importance of of the well watered here? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, water was very, very important. Abraham is traveling around a dry and a parched land, one that does not get much rain. And as you might know, Israel has a long and sordid history with worship, with idolatry, with the god Baal. And what is Baal? Baal is the god of the storm. He's, He's the rain god. That's why the Israelites are always tempted to worship him, because they need water, they need rain for their crops and their livelihood. If you look across the religions of the ancient Near East, you will find rain gods. But there is one exception. And the one exception is Egypt. They didn't need rain like their neighbors did. They had all the water they needed, so they didn't have to invoke some deity to get it. Egypt had the Nile. And for that reason, Egypt was well watered. So to be well-watered like Egypt, what does that mean? It means not to have to rely on God for any rain, to have self-sufficiency, to have an autonomy, 
to not depend on God. To be well-watered like Egypt is to have all that one needs without God. And so when we put this together, what does it mean? It means that Lot desires this beautiful land, but he does so without God. Strangely enough, he desires the garden of God without God. But does it deliver? Does it fulfill his purposes or his, his, his desires? No, it doesn't. And, and we find this out if we look at Lot's life, looking both backward and forward. To begin with, there's, there's an irony in the narrative. Abraham and Lot have become wealthy. And this tells us that this is not the first time that one of Lot's deep and great desires have been fulfilled. He's become rich with great livestock. If any herdsman had fulfilled his desire, it was certainly Lot. Yet he's, he's not satisfied. He doesn't have the security he needs. Again, the whole point of the separation is that there's not enough resources at hand to take care of the rich livestock that they have. The animals are dependent upon the land, and so Lot is learning that with each new form of richness, there's a new form of dependency. There was likely a time when Lot thought, if I could just have that many livestock, then all my desires would be fulfilled, I could rest, I could be content, and I wouldn't have to worry. But it's actually because of the livestock that the whole issue of separation arises. There's not enough food for all this livestock. And we can relate. We often think that once we have that thing, we won't need anything else. We've always desired that much livestock, but when we have that much livestock, we need land. We've always desired that particular house, but when we get that house, well, the house needs maintenance. That car needs repair. That new technology needs an ever-newer computer. Those funds that we've always desired need managing. With each new resource comes a new form of dependency. We can never escape it. We could never have that totally autonomous security that we desire. And of course, the livestock itself may die, the land may falter, the house may fall, the car may wreck, the computer may crash, and the funds may drop. But despite all this, Lot fools himself again. What he once thought would fulfill his deepest desire now pushes him to another desire. Now he desires the land, the well-watered Jordan Valley. If he can just settle there, then he will be content. Then he will be able to rest. Then he'll be without worry. And finally, 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 his desires will be fulfilled. But even this is not enough. Take a look at Lot's progression in relation to the wicked city of Sodom. We find him getting closer and closer and more and more involved. As one commentator writes, and, and I'm going to read the quotation with the, um, the chapter and verse citations as well, the commentator writes the following. Lot started living near Sodom. Soon, he was living in Sodom, 1412. Then, he was sitting in the gateway of the city, 191, which suggests that he held a position of respect among the citizens of Sodom, and his daughters were pledged to marry the inhabitants of the city. 1914. 
Eventually, the land itself starts to lose its draw for Lot. He's now captivated by the city of Sodom. He begins to leave the land behind and be more and more drawn into the rhythms of city life. What was once the garden of God has now lost its luster. He now desires something else. He's on to the next thing. At one point, he desired livestock and then land, and now what he wants is a respectable place in the life of the city. And this desire, too, will pass, or at least it would have passed, had Sodom not been destroyed. Again, we can relate. How often have we been so excited about something, and then after we get it, our life just doesn't change like we think it will change. The job may be a very good job, but we never thought there'd be days when we'd rather just quit. The marriage might be a very good marriage, but we never thought there would be days when we just don't understand our spouse. The house might be a very good house, but we never thought there'd be days when we'd rather just have a landlord handle everything that goes wrong. These are good things, but they're not the greatest things. And when we fixate on these kinds of things like Lot did, we will continually move from one to another, one to another, always thinking that the next thing is the best thing. And perhaps no one has communicated this fickle part of the present human condition better than that great classic figure from classic literature, Mr. Toad from Wind in the Willows. Great character. And as Toad tells his friends Rat and Mole about his new passion for taking a horse-drawn cart down the open road, and mind you, this is, this is after Toad has moved on from his unstoppable passion for boating, and just before he begins his passion for motor cars, Toad says the following about a horse-drawn carriage, and I'll do my best not to read this in a bad British accent. No promises, but do know that that's what I'm hearing in my, my head right now. Toad says, Oh, poo, boating! Sillish boy, silly boyish amusement. I've given that up long ago. Sheer waste of time, that's what it is. It makes me downright sorry to see you fellows, who ought to know better, spending all your energies in that aimless manner. No, I've discovered the real thing, the only genuine occupation for a lifetime. I propose to devote the remainder of mine to it, and can only regret the wasted years that lie behind me, squandered in trivialities. Come with me, dear Ratty, and your amiable friend also, if you will be so very good, just as far as the stable yard, and you shall see what you shall see. It's just a great piece of dialogue. I can't read that without smiling. For Lot, it was livestock, then land, then city life. And for Toad, and we see his excitement with each new thing that he undertakes, but if you keep reading the narrative, it's gone a few pages in the book, a few more pages. For Lot, it was livestock, then land, then city life. For Toad, it's boating, then horse-drawn carts, and then motor cars. So we have to ask, what is it for us? What is it for me? What is it for you? What is each new exciting thing that we chase and move on from and move on from? And what does all this have to do with scarcity? Well, for Lot, it made him selfish. It put him in a competitive relationship with everyone around him. Lot desires in such a way that it puts him in a situation of scarcity. For, for instance, his desire puts him at odds with Abraham. He wanted the land more than he wanted to honor and to love his uncle. 
But he doesn't stop there. Again, Lot becomes part of the city. And as we'll see later in Genesis 19, it causes him to ignore the wickedness, the cruelty, the oppression of city life in Sodom. Lot wants all that he can get. He wants land over his uncle, and he wants public status over justice. And so Lot operates in a continual state of scarcity. He desires much more than he needs, and this places him in a state of competition with absolutely everyone. And really, if you think about this, how could this be otherwise? If no good thing in creation can actually fulfill our deepest desires, then to seek something other than God as our greatest good just is to be in a perpetual state of scarcity. It's to always be seeking some finite, some limited thing as that which can fulfill my limitless desires. And it's always going to make us look for the next thing, just like Lot, just like Mr. Toad. And if this is true, then seeking anything other than God as our greatest good is going to work against generosity. There's only so much livestock, there's only so much land, so much status, so much food, so much time, so many resources of, of any kind. And yet, we have limitless desires. And so we will always be in a condition of scarcity as our limitless desires coincide with limited things. And again, this is going to cut against generosity at the core. And this is the way of life of Lot. But there is another way that's shown us by Abraham, and more importantly, that's shown us by God himself. And that brings us to our second and final point, generosity. Why was Abraham able to offer the land to Lot? Well, for, for Abraham, the land was not his greatest desire. If it was, he would have just taken the land for himself. It would have been his traditional right. He would have not been in the wrong for doing so. But if he had done so, he would have been operating in a state of, of scarcity as his limitless desire rested itself on the limited land. And again, if we what we desire most is something limited and everything except God is limited, then our desires will always surpass, go beyond, exceed any and all supply. There's simply not enough land, money, success, romance, or any kind of resource to quench our desires. To love something good in creation as our highest good just is to operate in scarcity. Only if there is something limitless, namely God, can our desires actually find their match. Without God, scarcity is inevitable. It's not just an economic reality, but an existential one. And again, there's an irony. Having more than enough is no defense against scarcity because scarcity is not a matter of having enough. It's a matter of our desires. Perhaps you've had this experience at the, at the dinner table where a child is, is there with their, with their first serving and they, they see something in the middle of food that they like and what they'll do is they'll grab all the rest and put it on their, their plate. And, and I should say here that, that in my heart of hearts, the children are, are just doing what I want to do. I don't think that adults are any better on the score. I think we're just more subtle. Um, but with kids in particular, an interesting thing happens because often they'll do that when they don't even finish their first serving. They actually had more than enough at the very beginning. But they were so 
worried that they wouldn't get what they desired, that they took the extra. Think about that image and then ask yourself, why was Abraham generous with the land? Well, because he believes the promise of God. Verse 14 and 15 says the following, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now here God has reiterated, uh, said again, a promise that he's given Abraham before. And Abraham trusts the promise. He trusts the provision of God. Because he trusts God, he, does, he knows he doesn't have to be crafty to get his way to get what he wants. In contrast to the, the, the situation I just described, Abraham is like a child sitting at the table unhurriedly eating the portion his parents have given to him. But what exactly is the promised land, and, and how does all of this relate to generosity? Well, in order to, to fully understand this promise, we actually have to move forward a bit and look at the anti-promise. If we think about the New Testament reading that was read today, amidst, amidst Satan's temptation of Jesus after Jesus' baptism, uh, we read the following in, in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Remember Lot. What Lot desired was the garden of God without God. Here, Satan presents a very interesting thing to Christ. He, prevent, he presents to Christ the kingdoms of humanity without humanity. What he presents to Christ is the rule over all of these kingdoms, but a rule over that does not include a fellowship, a dwelling with. As we'll see in just a moment, what Satan presents to Christ is earthly kingdoms without the cross. But to begin with, there's a deep irony in this temptation because what Christ is presented with is simply what he is due. Christ is the Son of God, and these kingdoms are technically his for the taking. But Christ rejects this temptation. He does not take what he is due because Christ remembers what is the true purpose of these human kingdoms. It's fellowship between God and humanity. These are the places where God meets humanity. These are the places where God dwells with humanity. Here's where we come to the cross. Because God, as a righteous and holy God, can only dwell with a righteous people. And we have fallen short. We are not a righteous people. So the question is, how does the cross give Christ the kingdoms of humanity with humanity? How does the cross make it so he, God himself, can dwell with us in these kingdoms? Well, in the suffering of the cross, Christ has not just given us the first choice of one plot of land over another, but Christ has given us his very life. 
He's taking the punishment that we deserve for our selfish desires and our artificial impositions of scarcity. Even more, he's given us the righteousness of a perfect life before both God and neighbor. And because of that perfect life, he has earned for us the very presence, the very favor, the very faithfulness of God. Yet, on the cross, Christ himself, in his humanity, lost this loving presence of God. For a time on the cross, Christ himself ceased to dwell with God. And so Christ has taken what we alone are due, the rejection of that dwelling, and given us what he alone is due, dwelling with God himself. And so we may seek a land without God, but God does not seek a land without us. If we remember an earlier sermon, we talked about the Christian faith is not our journey to God. The Christian faith is God's journey to us, that he might seek us, that he might find us, that he might rescue us. It's the story of God coming to dwell with us at the greatest cost to himself. And so what of the land? What, what of the fulfillment? Well, we, we do find the initial fulfillment of this promise, um, of the promised land in the Old Testament with the Israelites coming into the land of, of Canaan. But ultimately, we're called to look forward to a greater, fuller fulfillment. God really does intend to give Abraham and his offspring all of the land to the north, to the east, to the south and west, and not just all the land that Abraham can see, but all of the land that absolutely anyone can see. He aims to give the entire earth to Abraham and his offspring. And if you have the same faith as Abraham, if you too trust in God's promise as fulfilled in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. And what does this fulfillment look like? Well, the Apostle John shows us in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first time in the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So what is the promised land? Well, it's the whole earth, and God dwelling with us here on earth. Lot desired the garden of God without God, but Christ reverses this decision because he did not desire the kingdoms of humanity without humanity. The promise to Abraham then is the promise that God seeks to dwell with humanity, that he seeks to be with us. He really seeks to be with us, to dwell with us. And so why was Abraham generous with the land? Well, first of all, because Abraham knows that God has promised God's own self to him. Again, only the endless joys of God can fulfill the endless desires of our soul. Only if God is our greatest desire can we avoid operating in a state of scarcity, for he alone can exhaust our desires. And because of Christ, we have both the privilege and the assurance that God is with us, that he has given himself wholly to, it, to us to be enjoyed by us. Few, if any, will have the choice of Lot. 
Few, if any, will have an option to choose what we most desire. Few, if any of us, will become rich. Few, if any of us, will go to the top of our professional field. Few, if any of us, will achieve fame. Few, of any, few if any of us, will ever be on the cover of a magazine. But ironically, and Paul tells us this in Romans 1, it's a divine form of judgment to be handed over to your deepest desires if those deepest desires are something other than God. This is actually a form of, of judgment, a kind of self-inflicted punishment and suffering. To seek the garden of God without God is a dangerous place to be. We, we might think of it as drinking salt water. If, if you're thirsty, the worst thing you can do is, is to drink salt water. And as you drink it, you want more and more and more, but you actually become more dehydrated until your body eventually shuts down. You drink and you drink, you drink, you want more and more, you find yourself less and less satisfied until eventually you find yourself in a place of death. Seeking anything other than God as our greatest desire is like drinking salt water. Again, few, if any of us, will have the choice of lot. However, all of us, Think about this. All of us are presented with the one thing that will actually satisfy our deepest desires. In Christ Jesus, God has offered all of himself to each of us. We're offered much more than Lot himself could ever have imagined. Again, Lot, just like us, the problem is that he wants much too little, not too much. And Abraham, strange to say, was generous because he wanted much, much more than Lot. Again, in Christ, God has given us himself. For that reason, don't worry if you find yourself giving more or paying more than you think that you, you should. You're not going to miss out on anything. You have God himself. And secondly, and lastly, we have to remember that the land is the place where we meet God. The promise is that God would dwell with us here on the earth. And we already have God. And so growth in the Christian life is simply learning to receive what we've already been given, to bring God to dwell more deeply into each aspect of our lives. And so we're generous not to get God, but to better receive God. The Christian life, then, is just learning to invite God into more and more areas of our lives, that we may more fully dwell with him. This is the core of Christian generosity, making all that we have a place where we meet and where we dwell with God. Are you inviting God into your use of time, your job, your relationships, your money? Do you, do you actually prayerfully bring these parts of your life before the Lord? Do you invite God into these choices? I know I myself struggle with this a lot. And so one practice I would commend to you this week is the next decision you make about your time, your job, your relationships, your money. Pray and seek wisdom from God about what you should do, about how you should use these resources. Invite him into that choice so that you may dwell more deeply with him. Because if you're in Christ, you already have God. Therefore, learn to receive him more and more each day. Learn how to dwell with him deeply. Invite him into every space of your life. Christ gave up everything so that we might dwell with God that we might dwell in the land with him. Therefore, let us not seek to dwell in the land or in any part of our life without him. We've been invited into the garden of God with God, which is much more than Lot ever could have imagined. 
To again quote Kavanaugh, the solution to the restlessness of desire is to cultivate a desire for God, the eternal one in whom our hearts will find rest. In Christ, we're presented with the greatest gift of all, the endless fulfillment of our endless desire. What a gift. What a privilege. Let us learn to receive it as such. This is absolutely the only cure against scarcity. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that in Christ, you have come to dwell with us. We thank you that you seek us out, that you find us, that even though we seek to be in the land without you, you refuse. You seek to be in the land with us. Help us, Lord, each and every day in a million different ways. Learn how to dwell with you more deeply as we invite you more and more into our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.